Thank you, Pastor Karen. Good morning. Uh, good evening, everybody. You doing well? You might as well do well. I want to um, give thanks to a couple of people. First of all, I want to give thanks to Pastor Bardwell for entrusting me with the pulpit while he's gone. And uh, while we're thinking about Pastor and Miss Sandy, be sure to be praying for them because sometimes when you're in ministry, um, Sometimes it's your own drive. Sometimes it's just circumstances of the season or whatever. And uh, But sometimes it's difficult for God to convince you to take a Sabbath rest for a while. And uh, all of our pastors need a Sabbath rest. Amen. Come on. Amen. Uh it serves no one for our pastors to become overburdened and burnt out and uh, worn to a frazzle. And so uh, we as a church family, we need to always keep that in mind that uh, we need to encourage uh, our leadership, our lead pastor, our staff pastors to uh, make sure they have Sabbath rest seasons uh, in their ministry, because if they do, we all benefit in the end. Uh, how many know you function better when you feel rested and not, you know, hanging on to that last, uh, you feel like you're hanging on to that last thread. You, you don't function uh, as well. And so neither should we expect our pastors to. So pray for them while they're gone and having a rest that... Uh, God really uh, renews them and, and uh, fills their sails with fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Karen because uh, this really uh, could have been her time to minister to you. And, and so she uh, came to me one evening and said, if you... Uh, have the itch, I'll let you scratch it. Uh, so I want to thank Pastor Karen. Uh, she did a great job Sunday, I think. Uh, amen. Every time I say that, I get another shoulder rub, so I say that a lot. Um, the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk to you this evening about the subject of a world changer, a world changer. Most of us are familiar with world changers. Um, Patrick Henry said, I know not what course others will take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Abraham Lincoln said in summation of his words, we are fighting this great civil war, this great test of who we are so that we will see a new birth of freedom in our land so that we will have the opportunity to bind up 
the wounded and hurting to come alongside and care for the widow and orphan. We will follow the better angels of ourselves. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the front edge of the worst economic crisis to this point in our history, he reminded the great people of this nation, we actually have nothing to fear but fear itself. Winston Churchill, in the depth of the darkest day of the, of the oh, Second World War in Europe, when his country was left all alone, to face the might of the Axis forces. He told his people by the radio waves of the day, when their spirits were at their lowest, he told his people, if the Nazis come and they invade our island, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight them on the beaches. We're going to fight them on the landing grounds, we're going to fight them in the fields. We're going to fight them in the streets. We're going to fight them in the hills. We shall never surrender. Martin Luther King said, I am possessed of a dream. I have this dream that one day my children will no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of of their character. These men were all world changers. They're recognized as world changers. But just those little snippets, just those tugs of my memory that I was able to recall of them, they were part of much larger speeches and even a collection of words that they lived in their lifetimes of leadership. There's only one man I know, one person in all of recorded history that became a world changer by the utterance of two words. Two. In two words, early in his ministry, Jesus Christ showed himself and demonstrated that he was the world changer of all world changers. Two words. No one else could do that. Pray with me, please. Holy Spirit, I admit in my own ears and the hearing of all these gathered, that I have no words of my own that are worthy of their time and attention, nor do I have any words that can bring lasting change and impact into their lives. I admit my lack because, oh Lord, I want the fullness of your ability and your anointing right now. Holy Spirit, if you take these words, if you anoint in our hearing, what you would say to the church this night, then something will happen that is uncontainable. Something will happen that is greater than our collective expectation if you inhabit the preaching of these words. I ask it, Lord, 
by the power of your spirit, the blood of the lamb shed for our redemption. I ask you these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a quick history lesson. Because so often we miss these world-changing moments in Scripture because we fail to appreciate the context in which they were spoken. We kind of view them in, in the context of our modern day and we lose the impact of when they were spoken fresh. And even though the Holy Spirit can speak them fresh into our lives today, oftentimes if we lose the context of when they were spoken, we can lose a shade of the meaning. We can lose a part of the impact. Jesus was born in Israel. He was sent on earth initially to the people of Abraham. The lineal descendants of Abraham, the people of God on earth. Before there was the spiritual family of Abraham that came following his sacrifice on the cross. First, he was sent physically to the place we call the promised land or the place we call Israel today. They had a particular history. A history that spoke to them as a people. When they heard Jesus speak, when they were trying to evaluate and figure out just who is this young man who's come to us from Nazareth. Who is this young man who's speaking differently than anyone would have spoken before? How can we evaluate him? They evaluated him within the context of who they are as a people and where they had come from collectively. In their collective memory as the people of God on earth, the lineal descendants of Abraham. So when they heard Jesus speak, this was the lens through which they looked at him. Probably not the way in which we look at him today. Most of us are familiar with the story of who we call the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham lived somewhere around 1900 to 2000 years before Christ approximately. Sometimes dates are hard to get precisely that long ago. There's been changes in calendars and the way time is calculated, but that's approximate. And then we know the story of Abraham and Sarah, what they went through, waited 25 years on the promised son of the promised Isaac. And the Isaac's life, and then Isaac then had his younger son, Jacob, Jacob, the struggles he went through, he struggled mightily. Some problems of his own doing, some that came upon him. And Jacob's name was changed by God himself then to Israel. And so Jacob became the patriarch. It was his sons that uh, birthed the names of what uh, uh, came to be called the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's son was Joseph. Joseph, just as Jacob was kind of unexpectedly the child of the promise to Isaac, Joseph became 
really the child of the promise of all of Jacob's many sons. He was betrayed. He was sent into Egypt, sold as a slave, as chattel, a thing to be owned. Somehow he endured that through 17 years. And then ultimately, because he showed himself faithful in the worst circumstances, God elevated him to a place at the right hand of the seat of power of that entire region of the world, the kingdom of Egypt. And he became the, what we would probably call the prime minister of Egypt, Pharaoh's right-hand man, the, the man who ran the country on a day-to-day basis. God sent Joseph there for a purpose. What the enemy intended for evil, God turned it around and intended it for good, not only for Joseph, but for all his family. In the midst of one of the worst recorded famines in the entire portion of the world, God used his anointing and wisdom on Joseph to make a way so that Joseph and all of his family All of his household could then come and seek the provision of Egypt, which God had used Joseph to lay aside for this worst of all famines. So if you read uh, the very end of the book of Genesis into the very beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that Jacob, and it says that Jacob and all his lineal descendants, and there's a time or two it can get a little bit confusing because there's there's, there's one place earlier in Genesis that talks about 66 lineal descendants. And, and, and then you're not sure if it's mentioning Joseph's and his sons who are already in Egypt. And there's a place that talks about 70 lineal descendants. And then there's a reference in the uh, book of Acts and looking back and it talks about 75 lineal descendants. And uh, part of that may be due to some... Uh, uh, some of the listing of his lineal descendants that was back in an age because they kept uh, uh, they kept the list of heirs according uh, to the sons. Sometimes in some of the list, a few daughters are mentioned. Other times, it's probably likely they were not mentioned because that's just the way they did it in their culture. Uh, but however the Holy Spirit gave to those few men who were chosen to mention it, we know the number was correct as it was given to them, but it was somewhere around 70 lineal descendants. And they came into Egypt, and because of the favor that was on Joseph, Joseph's favor was transferred to them. And they were highly valued by Pharaoh's house and the nobility of Egypt. Highly valued. And so for the first couple of hundred years... Which, if you consider, especially back in that time when people got married very, very young and started having their own children at a very young age, probably, I know now we've developed this thing we will call sometimes a a generation 40 years. And there's really a place in Exodus, between Genesis and Exodus, where it really talks about oftentimes God counts a full generation as actually the full lifespan of a person. So God sometimes counts a generation as a hundred years. But as far as what I'm talking in this instance about generation is 
about the approximate time frame where someone would grow up and begin having their own children. So I rounded it down to about 20 years of age. So after Jacob and all his household came into Egypt, about 70 lineal descendants, not counting all of their wives, that they came into Egypt, and about 10 generations or roughly 200 years went by that they were still receiving the generational favor that Joseph had uh, obtained during his service as Egypt's prime minister. But now, 200 years later, Nobody was even around who remembered all the stories that great, great granddaddy uh, uh, Moses told and everybody who ran Egypt. And all of a sudden they started looking how all these Hebrews had multiplied. And then they became afraid because we have given them this portion of our kingdom. But what happens, that place we called Goshen happened to be closer to a border where some invaders just might come. And what happens if some invaders came and they persuaded these Hebrews to join with them? We would be overrun in our own country. So we need to do something to control these people. So after about 200 years of living there as uh, preferred uh, aliens in their country. Now they became looked at as Joseph was initially looked at. He became They became to be looked at as a thing, as a slave, as chattel, something to be owned and worked. No longer a human being, a subhuman. And they enslave them about 200 years into their sojourn into Egypt. And sometimes you can hear people criticize the Bible. Oh, well, well how could they go from just... Oh, 65 or 70 people. How could they go from that? And all of a sudden, they're like 600,000 men plus women and children. How could that just doesn't make any sense? Well, let me help you. First of all, as I told you, the Bible talks about the lineal descendants and primarily the male descendants of them at the time they came in. And it says just right out, this doesn't include all their spouses and wives. And oftentimes in that age, uh, in ways we don't understand, God would often permit People in a household that if uh, the first wife, oftentimes their influence was gauged by how many children she was successfully bearing. And if for some reason she didn't feel she was bearing as many children as she wanted, she would bring a favored maid who she had developed a special friendship, almost a close sisterly bond. And she would bring that, that servant in and say, okay, you are a, a surrogate for me. You have children through my husband. And this was allowed. I don't know that it was God's real idea for them, but God allowed it for a season in their culture. And so if it didn't certainly count their wives, it wouldn't have counted all the servants who were allowed to birth their children. Nor would it have counted this. If you pay attention in the middle of the book of Genesis, remember when the story was in Abraham's generation and he took his nephew Lot and then Lot got in a bad part of the country and Lot got taken captive and Abraham said I'm going to go rescue my nephew I'm not going to leave him in the hands of these idol, to, uh, uh, idol worshipers and it said Abraham out of his own household recruited over 300 men of arms so this didn't count the people who took care of his household this didn't count the cooks and the shepherds this didn't count uh, these were trained men at arms. He, had an, he was blessed to the point he had his own private armed force. And then a few chapters later, you see that one of the times where Abraham and Sarah were forced to journey to a strange place. And I guess 
Abraham and Sarah held their age really good because apparently she was a sweet-looking lady for a long, long time. Because Abraham always got worried some other dude's going to give her, you know, the wink. And so sometime he was not sure when they'd go to a new place. How am I going to, maybe they just want to bump me off to get my sweet looking wife. So sometimes he kind of fudged a little story because they had cousins. and Oh, you know, she's just my close relative. Well, one of the times later in the book of, of his story through the middle of the book of Genesis, he did this. When the local ruler found out, he said, hey, man, you almost put me in a bad way. If your God is who he says who he says you, you say he is. I could have got in some hot water in a hurry if I had given Miss Sarah the wink. So I don't want anything to do with this and to show there's no hard feelings, not just between me and you. I'm going to do something just in case there is something to this big God up there who's over everything. And it says he gifted not only Abraham with more livestock, he gifted him with more servants, both male and female. So if Abraham started out, with enough servants initially, that from those larger servants who took care of the day-to-day household, if he was able to recruit a 300-man army, and now his forces multiplied again. Okay, so we're talking just from one family, and you could say, well, Abraham's only lineal descendant of the promise was just Isaac. So you say, well, if, if, if it just says, well, here's Abraham and Sarah showed up and they had one lineage to send to Isaac. But their household would have been hundreds and hundreds of people. Now, so if you take it because the blessing of Abraham also went on Isaac and Isaac was blessed. And Isaac's the blessing of Isaac was put on Jacob. And then Jacob was eventually blessed after all of his little adventures and all of his little schemes. And he finally realized, I need to go God's way and not my way. And so now God blessed Jacob and multiplied Jacob's household. And now Jacob has these 12 sons he's bringing with him and all their households. They didn't show up with just 70, 75 people. They showed up with thousands of people. And from the perspective of the Egyptians through which part of this story is told, when they said after 200 years of taking them in, this people of Hebrews... They no longer care to distinguish who was the lineal descendant of who. All they were looking at over in the land of Goshen, these people we call Hebrews, they have multiplied from their thousands to their hundreds of thousands. We have a problem. So don't worry about people trying to nitpick and tell you the word of God is crazy. The word of God is not crazy. They just don't appreciate the context of the day. Now 200 years of slavery, bondage, toil, servitude, punishment, mindless labor, treated as subhuman, treated as a thing, not a person. What happened to all these stories we were told? What happened to all this blessing we said they told us we were going to have? Ten generations from when Jacob showed up to slavery. Now ten more generations who knew nothing but slavery. They didn't have a glimmer, not an idea of what the promise was anymore. It wasn't, mom and daddy used to have it. It wasn't grandpa and grandma used to have it. It wasn't great grandpa. It was ten generations 
It was a distant memory. It was almost a legend. It's one thing to have the theory, but none of them had experienced it. None of them had tasted it. They weren't even just barely getting by people. They were told, you're not even people. You're a thing. You're an animal. You are to be owned. This seeped into the collective mentality. This was part of the heritage of the people Jesus was sent to in his day. The time of the Exodus, somewhere around 1400, 1500 B.C., somewhere around there. The time of the Exodus. Now God brings them out. Listen to this scripture. Exodus chapter 19. God's brought them out. The Ten Commandments. It's easy for us just to think of Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille. Wasn't all that accurate, but it's a handy device just to sum up all the great things. God shows himself over all the symbolic gods of Egypt. I'm greater. I'm above. I'm the only true God. My people have come out. Not only did I bring them out, they're coming out with the wealth of Egypt. All those generations of unrequited toil, all those generations of working for nothing, now they came out and baby, they were loaded. They came out with God's mighty hand. No lame among them, no sick among them. They came out. Divine health, divine prosperity. Anybody listening? They journey. Moses, now that we're out, where are we going? He said, we're going to the place where we can worship God. We're going to the mountain of God. Here we go. So they go. A couple, three months, they get there. Here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to give you my covenant law, something I've never done in all the earth. I'm going to give you a covenant promises that if you and your people live this way, you will know beyond doubt that I am connected to you. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will be under my covenant covering. I'm going to give you my words from me to your ears. You get ready. And by the way, I have something for the rest of the people. Listen to what God says. Exodus 19. Verse 9. Exodus 19, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speak with you, so that the people will hear me. Hear God's intention. This isn't, he wants them to sense a little voice in their heart. He said, I'm going to talk out loud from my mountain. I want you to prepare the people. I want you to bring them around the foot of the mountain. I want them to hear. I know they can't come all the way to my presence, but I want to bring them to a place of fellowship with me they've never been before. I know they don't know it. I know their granddaddy didn't know it. I know their great, 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 great granddaddy didn't know it, but they're going to know it today. They have a God who loves them and wants to be in fellowship with them. If they'll follow me in what I say, bring him and prepare him. Moses told the Lord, what uh, Moses told uh, uh, the people. Then Moses told the Lord what the people said. Because the people said, uh, we'll prepare ourselves. Verse 10. 
They consecrated themselves. They washed up. They did ceremonial washing. Be ready. Because the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Go to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, listen to this. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The smoke built up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. So we're talking a great earthquake. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Come on, somebody. Go to chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the loud trumpet and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen to you. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. God wanted them to come to a new level, a new place of relationship. God wanted them to know. He wanted them to get beyond the almighty power of God. But because it had been so long since they had had a sense of God, when well, now they saw this great display of God's power, they couldn't get beyond that. They couldn't see that they, they couldn't see through all that surrounding God. They couldn't hear the heart of God saying, I want you to come closer to me. So they became petrified in their own fear. They couldn't believe part of what Moses was telling them. God really does want you to come to a closer place with him. They said, no, we, want to, we don't want to go through that. We don't want to deal with that. It's too loud. It's too big. It's shaking my world. It's just too much. It's too much. It's too big. I can't. Moses, you do it. You're qualified. You do it. You split the Red Sea. You do it. And so another level became ingrained in their culture. It's somebody else. It's for somebody else to get in a relationship with God. It's for somebody else. Then they heard the Ten Commandments and they heard the Levitical law and they heard what the priests were going to do and how they did the offerings and the holy days. So now there's this other level. Well, now we have the priesthood of Aaron. And so now we have, we can only come on certain times. We can only come near God's sanctuary on certain holy days. And only when we maybe mess up and we have to bring a sacrifice to show our forgiveness and our contriteness. 
And so now showing up sometimes maybe had, well, if it's not certain times, if you're showing up, it's really because everybody knows you kind of messed up because you're coming up with a forgiveness offering. And we've got all the Levites and all them. Now we have another level to separate us from God. And oh, by the way, even if we do show up, and we can only come to the outer court because the inner court is for the priesthood. And then there's not just the inner court. Then there's the veil, the holy of holies. And then there's only the great high priest. And he can only come in once. And once he gets in there, he can't even touch anything. Because if he touches something accidentally, he's going to drop dead. They were conditioned as a people. We, we can't get into a relationship with God. If you do something accidentally, you're just liable to drop dead. They had no concept in their culture. We take it for granted. Because we're the beneficiaries of the work on the cross. We're the beneficiaries of the age of grace. Their culture said something entirely different. Now we fast forward. It's about 400 years before Christ. What happened around 450 B.C.? The Persians have come in. The Persians have taken over everything. The Persian Empire. Including the nation of Judah. Long after the nation of Israel had gone its way to conquest. Now it's about 450 B.C. The Persians, but amazingly, they allowed the Jews to continue their worship of the temple. He said, just as long as you don't cause a fuss, we'll leave you alone. Around 410 B.C., Malachi, the last of the prophets, that's the last recorded written word they have of the Old Covenant. Now around 330 years before Christ, around 330 B.C., Alexander the Great shows up out of Macedonia. In my opinion, as a student of history, the greatest single conqueror in his lifetime. He likely conquered more people groups in just a span of about 12 years than anybody else did in history. Genghis Khan covered more of a land area, but I think fewer people groups. But Alexander the Great, starting when he just turned 20 years old, from 20 to just turned 33 when he died, he conquered everywhere from Western Europe all the way into past Afghanistan, into India. And if it wasn't for his soldiers just getting wore out from fighting, he was still ready to go. He probably would have gone into and conquered East Asia if his soldiers hadn't given up. He didn't give up. He never lost a battle that he led. His soldiers got tired of it, so he had to turn around. Alexander the Great began called the Hellenistic period, 330 B.C. Israel fell sway under the Hellenistic Empire. And amazingly, Alexander said, you Jews can still go on and keep being Jews. You go ahead. He died around 323 B.C. because he didn't have any male descendants that were capable of inheriting. The best they could do, they said, well, Let's just take his four best generals. Let's carve up his empire in quarters, and they'll start their own dynasty. So the Ptolemies, 
They kept the region that was primarily headed by Egypt, and the nation of Israel fell into that corner of Alexander's old empire. And so the Ptolemies took over. So now we're going into the 200 B.C., and they allowed the Jews to keep being Jews. And now we're going in near and near to actually 200 B.C., and now the Seleucids, who they had taken where Babylon was and that quadrant of Alexander's empire, now they get making noise and they come in the back door on the Ptolemies and they start taking over part of what the Ptolemies used to have. And now they come over around 200 B.C. and they take over. And they initially say, keep on being Jewish people. Go ahead. It was around this time that the religious sects we know as the Pharisees and then the Sadducees came up. The Pharisees were more, uh, more of a spiritual sect. The Sadducees were more of just, they just believed in the right here, right now. They didn't really believe in angels and demons. They didn't really believe in a, a heaven or a hell. They didn't really believe in the eternity of the soul. They just said, we're the people of the law of the covenant. And say they were kind of like administrative lawyers. The Sadducees, the Pharisees were more like, we would say, more clerical priesthood. But they were very legalistic. And the Pharisees believed not only. The Sadducees just believed in the first five books of the Bible. And nothing else counted. The Pharisees said. We believe in all of the written old covenant. And oh by the way we believe a little bit more. We believe there's going to be certain anointed teachers. And they can give an oral law. That's on an equal footing with the written law. Which as we know from the word of God. That's not true. But they believed it would be true. And so not only did they really, were they sticklers for all of the Levitical law. They didn't add another 10 commandments to the first commandments. They added another 618. So it's no wonder that later Jesus said in one of his messages about them, you've over, overburdened the people. It wasn't another 10, it was another 618. Around the time when Jesus' earthly ministry, there was about 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is roughly about 8,000 square miles. You take away Samaria, which they didn't like to go to for other legalistic reading, uh, reasons. So there's roughly about 6,000 square miles. There was about one Pharisee every square mile. Jesus was tripping over these dudes. Everywhere he turned, there was a Pharisee. There was no wonder he would try to get out of town and go out in the country and talk. He was tired of dealing with them. Everywhere he turned around, there was another Pharisee. And most all of them were critical of, them, of him. So here in Jesus' day, they had gone 400 years. Just like ancient Israel had been 400 years of captivity. Now they had been 400 years without hearing the written word of God, something new, something fresh. They've been under one empire after another. And now the Seleucid said in around 175 B.C., now it's no longer okay to be a Jew. In fact, it's no longer to keep up your services and your sacrifices in the temple. It's illegal. And they started burning any written form of the word of God they could find. And so finally the Jewish people said, we've got to fight or die. And they fought. And the Hasmoneans, 
or the, what we call sometimes the Maccabean Revolt, but it was basically like the leadership of a warrior priesthood came up. Those Pharisees and Sadducees that we often criticize, they were the leadership that came in and saved the nation of Israel from being stamped out by the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, although they were very legalistic, they weren't all bad at certain times. They preserved Israel as a nation. If they hadn't have done that, our world would be vastly, vastly different. So would Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry had been. So when Jesus' day comes... And he starts engaging the Pharisees and Sadducees. We kind of read it through the lens now 2,000 years later. And we think, well, who wouldn't get Jesus' point? All these hypocritical religious folk. That wasn't their point of view in his day. The Pharisees and Sadducees had been the saviors of the nation and people of Israel. Context of it. That's his audience. That's what he was dealing with. Around 63 B.C., the Hasmoneans are kicked out. Here comes big bad Rome. Pompey the Great leads legions. Now Israel is occupied by yet another world empire, the Romans. They had about a century when they were free and ran their own affairs. But now that's gone. Now the Romans... Jesus is born, what we call in our calendar, roughly 4 B.C. Now he's about 30 years of age. His public ministry begins. And early in his public ministry, his disciples and those who were kind of hanging on to his disciples, they come to him. And he's really in the flow of one of his most significant early messages. And probably when he... Maybe he takes a break and he moistens his throat with some good water. Because he's been talking without a microphone. He said, by the way, Jesus, how should we pray? Are you ready for the two words? Are you ready for the two words? Jesus, how should we pray? Our Father. Big deal, Pastor Ryan. You gave us that 23 minutes of lead up. Everybody knows our Father. Thanks. I showed up in the middle of a heat wave, 100 degrees on Wednesday night for our Father. Our Father. Well, John told us in his gospel, he said, by the way, don't think that these four gospels, don't think that we had room and vellum and ink enough to write down everything Jesus taught and did. We don't. 
So sometimes to find the heart of what Jesus is really teaching about, sometimes we have to do a little digging and go to the rest of the New Testament, sometimes the Old Covenant, Old Testament, to find how Jesus was really speaking, the fullness of it, because they just couldn't write down everything he literally said. So when Jesus said, here's how you begin to pray, here's how you approach Yahweh, God Almighty, He is Yahweh God Almighty. He is the I am, the I am. But I'm here to tell you, as his son, I'm here to tell you that there is a new revelation coming your way, and I'm unleashing it. I'm giving it to you. Just like Moses tried to give you a taste of it generations ago, and he tried to just get you close to God. He tried to just get you into God's zip code, and you got afraid and scared by his power and might, and you couldn't see beyond that because you were too worried about it, and you couldn't hear the cry of his heart for his people to come closer and get a personal, more direct connection. And then you hid behind the prophets, and you hid behind the priesthood and you got comfortable on the wrong side of the veil and you got really uh, used to being disinterested and separated from me. I'm here to tell you, I'm trying to give you, there's a new way God is reaching out to you. It's not just Yahweh God Almighty. It's not just Yahweh I am that I am. It's Abba Father. You have to do a little digging. You have to dig some reading outside of the Word of God of of linguistic experts who know the fullness of what that word means. It means this. Abba, Father, means this. It means, okay, Daddy's in his chair. Come on. Come on. Daddy's waiting on you. Come on. And the little kid sees Daddy and has been waiting on Daddy to show up. And that three-year-old son or that three-year-old little girl sees daddy with his arms open wide. And they run. Ah! And they run and they jump. Boom. And daddy catches him right in his lap. That's Abba Father. No staying on the wrong side of the veil. No hiding behind Aaron and his sons. No waiting until you messed up and you had to bring a forgiveness sacrifice. No waiting on the holy days or the feast days. No just waving the sheaves on the outer court. No just hanging out and just worrying about that you might get struck down dead. Now God said, through this, my son, Jesus Christ, I'm bringing you a new time, a new revelation, a new mercy and grace. And God Almighty, yes, he's all powerful. Yes, he has all might in his hand. Yes, he leads the host of heavens. But he's one more thing. He's your great big daddy he's been waiting on you to run up to his lap and to give him a great big hug and wrap yourself around his neck and listen to him say I love you daughter I love you son oh daddy I love you I can't wait oh he's got a whole new level waiting on you Since we follow the Spirit, Galatians and Romans says, we know we have the Spirit of sonship, and we know for this reason, because the Spirit cries through us, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. Now it's kind of easy for us kind of make fun of those old Israelites. Yeah, look at them. They just had their sheep and their goats and the blah, blah, blah. 
How about us? Ooh, I hope Pastor heard from God this week. I hope Pastor Barbo has a good one. Because, boy, I need it. I appreciate that, but why don't you get something from God? Let me challenge you something. When you're driving around town, actually look through the windshield of the other car and look at the faces of the other drivers. And a lot of them are Christians. When you go to Walmart or the grocery store, don't stare straight ahead like a crash test dummy. Or don't stare at the tile and count the lines in the tiles on the floor. Do yourself a Actually look in the eyes and the faces of the other people. Man, they got the aisles blocked again. They only got one checker again. How do you walk out of your house? How do you walk out of this place of worship? What do you feel like you have on the inside of you? Jesus said in two words, I'm a world changer. In two words, I'm changing the dynamic of your relationship and your connection with your heavenly father. The one who created you. In two words, I'm changing the dynamic of how you relate to him and how he can relate to you. When you walk around, what do you feel like you have on the inside of you? Oh, Pastor Brian, you don't know my problems. You don't know my issues. You know, I know I don't. And they matter. Oh. But if you let the Lord, Jesus said, Listen, I'm the light of the world, but you're the one who's responsible by whether I shine or not. He said, you can cover me up with all your junk, or you can put me on top where everybody can see. He said, I'm the light of the world, but it's up to you how I'm displayed. You can put me under the bed. You can put me where all your junk is. You can put me where all your problems are. You can put your feeling of what you've got on the inside of you because I got problems at school, because I got problems at work, because my spouse is on my last nerve, because my kids are doing that thing again that I can't stand that they do, because I got another call from the teacher, because I'm about to get a pink slip, because the rumor mill at work is there's going to be another wave of layoffs, because I don't know how I'm going to make it in this COVID generation. And I got to wear a mask. I don't got to wear a mask. I got to get a shot. I don't got to get a shot. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you allow the light of the world inside of you you allow it to be hidden under the clutter of your life and you start walking around like you got nothing to offer like you got nothing to connect with people and the holy spirit wants you to know you have the light of the world you have the world changer of jesus christ in your life you need to walk around and look at people with a smile on your face you need to walk around and look different God said about Caleb in Numbers. He said, here's why I like Caleb. Here's why Caleb is blessed. Caleb is just different. 
I looked up that word in my exhaustive concordance. You know what different means in Hebrew? It means made brand new. It means more. There was something more inside of him. It means extra. Caleb just had that something extra. Mm. You and I have something even Caleb never had. Caleb never had the blood of Jesus shed over his soul. Caleb never had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody. I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to tell you, you've got something to offer. Just be different. Just be different when you go in the world. Put a smile on your face. Just be different on the outside. Refuse to grumble in the checkout line when everybody's grumbling. Refuse to get irritated when it's 105 in the shade. Just be different. And if you're different, pretty soon somebody's going to look you in the eye. And somebody's going to say, how in the world are you so cheerful? How in the world are you keeping your temperament? How in the world are you doing this when Everybody else is going crazy and everybody else is barely hanging on. You could say, let me tell you who I know. Let me tell you who's changed me. Let me tell you who's made my life brand new. I've got something on the inside of me and his name is Jesus and he's about to get out right in here and you can have some of them if you want him. A world changer. A world changer. But it's up to you. And it's up to me. What are we doing with light? Is it underneath all of our junk? And all of our problems? Or do you walk around with the excitement and life of the Holy Spirit just rolling out of you? tell you this quick little story and then I'll let you go. When I was stricken with Guillain-Barre in the winter of 2003, I was sent by a critical care ambulance after a week in this hospital. I was sent down to Mercy Hospital, Evan, Oklahoma. And I was at the beginning of my three-month stay in the hospital. Karen and I had decided, and we asked the Lord to help us, Holy Spirit, help us to be different. Help us to not be just another patient that they're taking care of. Help us to be different. We weren't perfect. We all had our days. I had tubes going in and out everywhere. I had a machine helping me breathe. I had something pumping food into me through my nose and down into my stomach. I couldn't move, couldn't talk. My vocal cords were frozen. I didn't have a sip of water, not even a chip of ice in my mouth for six weeks. You think you got dry mouth when it's 102. Let me tell you something. You ain't had dry mouth till you've gone six weeks with nothing. And finally, with a lot of prayers... From this church family, from we found out around the world through emails and everything else, the tide started turning. And finally the day came. They were, they were going to see if I could handle a sip of water without choking to death. So they had a critical care nurse. They had uh, a pulmonary therapist. And they had 
a, a speech and vocal cord therapist who specialized in the area of your larynx. And they were all standing by. And Karen was the only one they let stay in the room. And they said, okay. They just tilted my head up a little bit. And they just gave me this tiny sip of water. And that water hit my lips. And it hit my tongue. And it rolled in the back of my throat. And I said, Lord, and he helped my little throat swallow. And I don't know how long until Jesus comes. I don't know how long I'm going to live on this earth. But until I get to heaven and drink something out of that river of life, that's the sweetest drink I've ever had in my life. And I could still barely move. I had a little bit of movement in my arms. And my vocal cords barely worked, but they worked a little bit. And after I took that drink of water, I had Karen by one hand. And I just croaked in a whisper. And I looked at those three nurses standing over my bed. And I said, you'll have to excuse me and Miss Karen. Because we got to have church and thank Jesus real quick. And I raised my other hand. And Karen raised her hand. And it wasn't a big deal to make us cry. But those three seasoned professionals who deal with these kind of people and problems every day, they begin weeping, every one of them bawling like babies. Because they knew, they thought there was just five people in their room, but all of a sudden there was a sixth. Because we decided going in, we were going to be different. Come to find out later on when those sweet nurses and those special critical care units would come on shift, they would argue who got to have our room. It was a contest. They wanted to be with those crazy wise men. They're just different. But we got to plant seeds of God's word into their lives. Not because we were special or holier than anybody. Because we are just different. We believed there was something on the inside of us that needed to get out. I want you to believe that when you leave tonight. Stand up with me. Holy Spirit, I thank you. That you are the world changer. I thank you that you made the sacrifice of Jesus real to us. Holy Spirit, indwell in us to the point where we've got to let you out. We, we can't walk around like the status quo. We can't walk around like it's yesterday and the day before and the day before. we got to walk around like it's a new day. This is somebody's salvation day. Because you've privileged us to have you on the inside. You've privileged us to call us to be world changers. Do it, we ask, Almighty Father. In the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. According to your word. Amen.
and amen. I sure love you. God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday. You are dismissed.